Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's expert guest is the one and only Dr. Stacey Sims, famously known for her quote, women are not small men. Dr. Sims is an exercise physiologist, nutrition scientist, and author of Raw, a book dedicated to matching your food and fitness to your unique female physiology for optimum performance, great health, and a strong lean body for life. Dr. Sims is currently a senior research scientist at the University of Waikato, where she is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. Today's podcast will focus on the female physiology and training, and we will bring Dr. Stacey back for a second podcast where we will focus on nutrition science for the unique female physiology. Head on over to social media and give her a follow at Dr. Stacey Sims. That's Dr. with a DR, Stacey Sims. Today's podcast is brought to you by Nutra Organics, one of my favorite Australian whole food companies who provide a range of organic, honest whole food products to nourish you and your family. You can follow them on social media at Nutra Organics. And let's jump straight into today's incredible podcast. Welcome, Dr. Stacey Sims, to the podcast. It is absolutely incredible to have you on today, and we're very, very excited to chat all things nutrition and physiology for females. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yes, and again, I wanted to start um, just by saying I think a worldwide thank you for females worldwide for all of this exciting research that you are doing because it is sort of a new area and even something that I've only started looking at recently, I must admit, in the last couple of months and everything that I read from you is is just so exciting. So you're probably one of my favorite guests that I've had on all year. So I can't wait to to break some things down with you today. Oh, thanks. It's uh, <laughs> been a long time coming for people to to grasp onto it. So I'm really amazed at how like how viral everything's gone in the past year and a bit. So um, the more we talk about it, the more it gets out there and the better it is. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So I'd love to start by just introducing you to our listeners to begin with. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey um, to becoming an exercise physiologist and a nutrition scientist and why you um, chose to, I guess, get into the research side of things? Um, gosh, it's it's been a convoluted journey, I guess. I was a cross country runner um, and really into like the sustainable nutrition stuff growing up in San Francisco. And then when it came to being at university, I started as a poli sci and French major because I wanted to work for the UN. But um, I fell asleep in every poli sci class and managed to stay awake in my exercise phys class and found it really interesting because uh, I was a rower at the time on the crew team. Um, and so what I was learning in the classroom, I was trying to apply to what I was doing as an athlete, but there were a lot of things that were a little bit of a misstep. So I started asking questions and being the why girl, ever since I was little, I uh, wasn't quite getting the right answers. I'd be like, well, why are we flat? Why do we have these different um, responses when we do this lab in class? And it was always, oh, women are anomaly or oh, it's just an outlier. And it, it never really made sense. So. Part of the drive, I guess, to have one foot in academia 
was also because I had one foot in the athletic world, being an athlete and and racing at a high level and wanting to maximize my performance and still not getting those answers. Um, and always getting the pushback of, you know, women, we don't study women, they have a menstrual cycle, or, you know, it's too difficult to study women, we know enough, we can just generalize, and none of that made sense to me. Um, so that really was a platform for the past 20 some years of, of trying to really get into the research and trying to push the message out that there are sex differences in utero that affect us from, you know, from the time we're born all the way through the time we die. Um, yeah, so it's been uh, interesting to see how things have changed over the past 20 some odd years with really only the uptake in the past two. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I'm so happy and proud to be helping you get your message and your research out there. And to date, what has been your most exciting finding or what's been that thing that you've just thought, oh, this, you know, all of these years and years and years of research has made this worldwide, uh, has made this worthwhile, I guess. Um, I think things started really taking shape. Uh, when I retired from high professional racing and started working with my teammates who kept going. So that was like the mm -hmm. inkling to see how their performance potential improved just by doing small changes with recovery or nutrition or trying to get them off an oral contraceptive pill to use their own natural cycle and really uh, understanding how people felt between like a low hormone and high hormone phase. And then the epitome um, for me to keep pushing it is I have a, a daughter. And I don't want her to be pulled back for any sociocultural constraints of these ideas of how women should be treated in a sporting environment from both the body image all the way through the training aspects. So I see her and her friends and that's how it should be. They all play, they all do stuff for fun and there are no, there's no real like impetus for them to do something different. But as you start getting into that more controlled sporting environment, you start seeing these constraints and those constraints aren't right. Um, so that's, the, that's, that's pretty much the drive. Love it. And I love that you're, you're helping to um, change women even from such a young age, you know, even from, from childhood as well, not just waiting until they, they grow up and they become elite athletes as well. Yeah, no, I mean, um, like watching how the incidence of puberty affects young girls from you know, nutrition standpoints. I, I have a lot of moms who get a hold of me and say, I don't understand my, my daughter's period stopped or you know, she's having all these stress reactions. And it, it, when you back it up to the onset of puberty and we see all of these changes that happen with girls with the epigenetic change of estrogen and progesterone exposure. So, you know, our Q angle gets wider, so our hips widen, our carrying angle of our shoulders widen. We put on more belly fat and no one addresses that in the sporting context. So no one tells us, oh, well, we should really work on learning how to rerun or how to re-land in our jumping mechanics because our biomechanics have changed. No one tells us that it's a temporary blip. And if we change some of the ways that we're eating, uh, we can mitigate some of that body fat that's coming on. Um, so there's so many things that we can do to help our girls at the onset of puberty to start trying to, to downplay and eliminate some of those body image issues and keep our girls engaged in sport. But it has to start then. Uh, so that's that's another um, like passion of mine that's really starting to get traction over here is trying to address what happens at the onset of puberty so we can 
change up and have boys doing one certain um, functional movement type skills and girls doing others to get that good foundation of a sporting um, fitness from the basic mechanics. So as they go through their sporting history or their sporting life, be it, um, you know, professional or just being recreational, they have the confidence because they have the skill and the basic foundations of movement. I love that. And I love that even just keeping, you know, young girls in sport, because as you mentioned, I I remember the minute I hit high school, HP was always one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite subjects. Some people don't call it a subject, but sport to me was always a subject. And the amount of just um, females in my class that would just hand in a sick certificate every time their period came and they never participated in class. And it was like this ongoing joke that you didn't have to do sport just because you had your period. Whereas, and it just wasn't ever talked about, even with male and female teachers as well. So I love that you're, that, that, that's a passion for you is even just keeping young women in sport, um, you know, after they hit puberty as well. Yeah. And I've seen a, an interesting change in the past year or so because um, New Zealand's pretty small and the sport world is pretty small. So everyone's heard me talk about sex differences and how we need to look after our young girls and more mm-hmm. and more fathers and male coaches are asking these questions like how do we have the conversation at the onset of puberty how do we involve our girls more to take you know take action and, and say our periods are a good thing so it's it's an interesting subculture that's evolving and i'm hoping that it gets to be not the subculture but the culture love it and i love that you're driving this um now a quote that you are famous for is women are not small men and i love this and i would love to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this and um some of the research and the findings that have come out of that because i mean it seems like an obvious statement but as you keep saying the research um up until now really hasn't supported it has it no because most of what we know in the sport and exercise uh research world and even right down to recommendations for protein and carbohydrate intake been done on male participants or male rats and just generalized women. And if you look at the history of women in sport, women have been marginalized for so long. So the generalizations just seem uh, par for the course. And it's not just in sport, but I'm just sticking with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about women are not small men, it's really just that catchphrase to get people to take a double taking bait. Like, what do you mean? So opens that conversation say, well, you know, these protein guidelines and recommendations that all these national bodies have came up with. If you look at the actual citations, there's 160 citations in these guidelines. Not one of them are have anything to do with women, unless it's women with menstrual dysfunction. So how can you say that a woman needs XYZ when none of the research has been done on women? It's a blatant example of that generalization that goes all the way through to other professions, you know, registered dietitians, sports dietitians, nutritionists, they all rely on these guidelines. And so it's just a, a prime example of, of these generalizations that can impede women's health and performance. Couldn't agree more. And just even reading your book, um, for our listeners at home, Raw, we'll talk about it a little bit later, that I just loved how you um, you actually provided some guidance. And even as a, as a health professional myself, it's not things that we get taught at university. And as you mentioned, even all the, the national guidelines, the worldwide guidelines on carbohydrate protein recommendations, as you mentioned, they're just not specific to females, whereas a lot of um, health professionals do work specifically with females. I mean, it's about 50% of the population. So it's so lovely to hear that you are doing such important work in these areas. Yeah. And, you know, the other one coming up about, you know, menstrual cycle and being on a pill and all that changes your metabolic parameters as well. 
And I mean, I find women don't even understand what their hormones are doing and how it affects them other than it makes them feel flat sometimes or depressed other times. It's like, well, no, they're systemic. So if we're trying to educate of, of what your your nutrition recommendations are, you have to not only look at the sporting context of what you're doing from a training aspect, but also where are you in your cycle? Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. And I'd love to um, take a little bit more of a deep dive into that and get you to explain to our listeners exactly what does happen to females' bodies from a physiology perspective um, during our cycle and how that can affect performance depending on where our cycle um, we are, where in the cycle we are. Yeah. So if I uh, take a, a textbook orientation, we say it's a, a 28-day cycle. Um, although when we look at the research that came out about a month and a half ago from data mining all the cycles in the Clue app, so there was like 600,000 cycles that they were able to investigate. We know that a women's normal cycle is between 35 and 40 days. Uh, but for the textbook like nice and neat, we go 28 days. And the first two weeks we say is the low hormone phase where estrogen and progesterone are low. And then around day 13, 14, ovulation happens and ovulation is preceded by a rise in estrogen. So you have a little bit of an estrogen surge then estrogen starts to taper down a little bit. Progesterone comes up, estrogen comes up. So then the last two weeks right before bleeding begins Uh, you have elevation of estrogen, progesterone, and we call that the high hormone phase. So in the low hormone phase, this is where if if people do research studies and include women, they put women in during this low hormone phase because this is where we have the least perturbations and we're more like men. And what I mean by that is um, we can hit high intensities really well. Uh, we have better recovery time. Our core temperature is lower. We're primarily using carbohydrate at that high intensity. Um, but then when we start to get around ovulation with this upsurge of estrogen, this is where things start to change because we know estrogen is anabolic. So it'll, it'll change our ability to, um, recover and build lean mass. It also enhances fatty acid utilization. So we can't quite hit intensities because our body's kind of fighting it because estrogen saying, no, no, use more fat. And then when we get into the high hormone phase with estrogen and progesterone, this is where we are the least like men, where our respiration rate is elevated, our resting heart rate is elevated, our core temperature is elevated. We have less uh, water in the blood for um, thermoregulations. Uh, because we have a shift of fluids that estrogen and progesterone mitigate. Um, We have more catabolism, so it's harder to recover from exercise because progesterone is very catabolic. Uh, For endurance athletes, we're more predisposed to hyponatremia because progesterone causes a total body loss of sodium, kicks it out because it competes with a, a key hormone called aldosterone. Um, and then from like a performance standpoint, regardless of the undercurrent of the physiological changes, we know that women feel flatter. They can't hit intensities. They have a bit of brain fog. And all that has to do with how the hormones are affecting um, different receptor sites and neurotransmitter receptor sites in the brain. It's affecting our ability to access carbohydrate. It's affecting our ability to um to really instigate that muscle protein synthesis because we have a decrease in our amino acid pool. Um, And when women become aware of this, they're like, oh, I can't do anything in the high hormone phase. It's like, well, no, you can. It's just that if you're aware of these changes, then we can look to put in specific interventions 
so that in that high hormone phase, you're not being as affected by the hormones as you would be if you didn't put in interventions. Because I don't want anyone to ever go, oh, you know, I can't do anything because I'm getting ready to have my period. Um, just like the high school aspects that you were talking about, how everyone brings in a permission slip to skip skip PE because they're on their period or they have period cramps. And I don't ever want that to be an excuse because there are so many things you can do to mitigate those. Definitely. And can we talk about maybe one or two of those things, even from a really broad perspective? You mentioned the low hormone phase is more that phase where we sort of are training more like men, you know, we can hit more intensities, we're stronger, um, we can utilize more carb. So that's a really good phase to, is it maybe do some strength and power-based training, things that require uh, maybe concentration, um, that sort of thing? Yeah, so when we look at um, some of the newer research that's coming out, they've been phase training from a strength perspective. And we know that if you do all of your heavy lifting in the low hormone phase and do more um, skill-based in deloading in the in like the week before your period starts, you end up with greater lean mass and strength development than if you were to do a typical three to four times a week uh, across the entire cycle. So again, when you look at using your cycle as a as an ergogenic aid, you can get more out of the work that you're doing and you're not hitting the wall as much. Love it. And with that high hormone phase, you mentioned, you know, it's harder to recover. We just feel a bit blah, a bit flat. Um, we're not able to do as much intensity as normal. You mentioned a bit of a deload phase there. Do you recommend that people just really taper down their training? I mean, bearing in mind the majority of the listeners to this podcast are more what we would call um, weekend warriors or just even gen pop, where we exercise because we just want to, um, you know, be fit and healthy. They're not really um, elite athletes that are listening to this podcast. So if somebody is doing, you know, a couple of days of strength training a week, following that high hormone phase that they might be leading up to their menstrual cycle, would you recommend that they completely say, take a week off gym or just change up the different type of training that they're doing? Oh, never take, never take the tame off because then that makes it, you know, the excuse of I can't do this because I'm in the high hormone phase. It's, I mean, inherently we listen to our bodies, right? So, you know, a few days before period starts, a lot of women are like, I feel really flat. I'm not going to be able to hit this, this weight that I'm lifting CrossFit, or I'm not going to try to, to get my PR in, in this heavy lift, or I'm going to skip that boot camp and go for yin yoga. Um, and those are some of the things that you want to do. And the way I describe it across the board, it doesn't matter if you're an elite athlete or someone who's just getting into the gym. If we look at working on technique and functional movement and lowering that cardiovascular uh, stress during that those few days before your period starts, there's a few things that that really benefit us. One, we reduce overall stress. And if we reduce stress, we redu- reduce cortisol. We redu- reduce cortisol, then that helps across the board to keep body fat at bay. Um, If we are learning a particular skill and working on functional movement and balance in a time when our body is perceived as being quote tired because we can't access those, uh, you know, the carbohydrate for the high intensity, we have a little brain fog because we have estrogen that's crossed the blood brain barrier. If we're working on that technique and skill, in that state, then in all the other phases or all the other times in the menstrual cycle, you're going to nail that technique. If you're nailing the technique, then your lifts are better. Your form is better across the board. You're going to get a better, uh, exercise stress stimulus. That way you're going to recover from that stress and get fitter and faster with less work. 
Um, so it's not about deloading per se or staying out of the gym. It's recognizing the fact that you can use that high hormone phase to your benefit without really stressing the body. And would you recommend not trying to hit, you know, PBs and really go gung-ho during that high hormone phase? If somebody does feel, you know, really quite wonderful, um, would you recommend that they go all out and try to hit a PB or is that almost dangerous or they're more likely to sort of injure themselves within that high hormone phase? Um, just around ovulation, we know that there's a greater risk for ligament damage and lig- in particular ACL tears. Um, and a lot of women, you know, feel fa- fabulous around ovulation and want to hit a, a PR. So yeah, you do that, but you have to be very careful. In the high hormone f- phase, if you feel fabulous and you want to go for it, there's not that risk. So go for it, hit it hard. It's the only, only caveat is just being aware of that kind of stress because you don't want to overexert and stimulate the sympathetic drive because it's so much harder to recover. Um, but there are some women who are the day before their period starts or two days before their period start, go and have a fabulous, like high intensity workout because their hormones have already dropped. And we don't know exactly, um, you know, person to person is very individual of how long it takes for those hormones to drop. And it's an inflammation response. So once those hormones drop, then a day or two later, you'll start bleeding. So that's why some women feel fantastic the day before and go hit it really hard. And then some women are like, eh, on the day or the day after. It's just about those hormones coming down. Um, so, yeah, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, a, a caution of don't do this unless it's around ovulation. If you feel good, go for it. But if you're looking to periodize and maximize your training, really the best thing to do is track your cycle and know how you feel across each phase so you can pick out patterns um, and know when you feel fantastic and when you feel a little bit flat. And that will indicate what kinds of changes you should make in your training. I love that because everybody is so different, aren't they? Yeah. Now, I'd love um, for you to talk a little bit about Redis syndrome. We've talked about it a little bit on this podcast with a few other experts, but I know that there are probably some ladies listening at home thinking, you know, I don't even get my period or, you know, it's been a little while, you know, maybe a year or so since I've had a period. And I actually, and I'm sure you do too, always get messages on Instagram from young females saying, you know, I don't have my period. What should I do? So could we talk a little bit about um, Redis syndrome and um, just, I guess, your experiences from it and the Need and why it is so, I guess, dangerous and the need to link in with their doctors? Yeah. So um, Red S is relative energy deficiency in sport, and it's more of the holistic look. Uh, and I say that from the standpoint where as a physiologist or a dietitian or a medical doctor, you get so siloed in looking at just one specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm doing quite a bit of work with one of my favorite people and colleague, Dr. Holly Thorpe, and she's a, a sociologist um, and really brings context to the sporting environment. And when we start merging our work and see what the drive is for exercise or what the drive is for food intake or what the cultural boundaries are around different food choices and recovery mechanisms, you can really get a really good handle on what is going to enable an athlete to recover or 
um, from like red S or low energy availability or what's causing these women to restrict their calories. And when you get a handle on that, it becomes more of the preventative measures. So when we look at what the full red S is, it's not just low energy availability. It's not just the lack of menstrual cycle. It's not just the psychological undercurrent of body image. Um, it's all of those factors together. And when we look at the one drive from a physiological basis of losing your period, it comes down to that low energy availability. It's either intentional or unintentional. We know that when training ramps up, appetite goes down, affects appetite hormone. And so you end up with a greater calorie output than input. And this can predispose being in a subclinical state. And we know that over 45% of recreational female um, athletes or, you know, just people who go to the gym four times a week are in the subclinical low energy state. And when we say it's subclinical, it's not enough of a perturbation to make you lose your cycle, but it is enough of a perturbation where you'll start to have menstrual irregularities. You'll start to have a little bit of thyroid dysfunction, and that comes out as being on the low end of normal for thyroid function, thyroid panels, but also putting on more belly fat, feeling undue fatigue, not recovering well. And the response really when you don't understand what's going on is to train more and eat less, which is the opposite of what people should be doing. They should be fueling for what they are doing, not doing fasted training, not delaying intake post-exercise, but really looking and understanding that exercise is a massive stress and you want to be able to give your body what it needs to encounter that stress, overcome it, and recover from it. And then the rest of the time, you can play around with your, your energy intake. And some of the really compelling research that's come out recently is those women who say they exercise first thing in the morning and they don't eat before they go be it because they want to do a fasted workout because they've heard it's a great thing or they're too busy. And then they delay their food until like lunchtime and they might have lunch and then they get really super busy and then they eat again for dinner. And throughout the day, they have these big, huge gaps of no food. Although overall, they end up eating enough for, um, you know, their RMR, the resting metabolic rate and all their activities. So they're not technically in an energy deficit, but because they have these big holes of no food intake, their body is in a significant breakdown phase, which perpetuates the symptoms of red S and low energy availability. So again, it comes back to the timing of food and understanding it. It's like, why is someone going to do a fasted workout? Because they, they've heard that it makes them use more body fat and it makes them more, quote, metabolically efficient. Where we know the research shows that women need to, to be fed in order to maximize adaptations. We are already maximized our fatty acid oxidation capacity because estrogen does that across the cycle. So getting women to really understand their own bodies and understand how these hormones affect us can really do a lot to reduce that subclinical state of, of low energy availability in reds. I love that. And I love how you talk about fueling for the workout that you're doing, not, I guess, how most women see it as fueling for weight loss almost. So they're thinking about it from a weight loss perspective and not from a, I need to fuel my body and nourish it in terms of the amount of training that I'm doing as well. Yeah, because a lot of people think about, oh, I'm going to burn X amount of calories. So then I can eat so and so you see it across the board in some of the especially right now around Christmas time. 
um, all these girl or women fitness magazines. Oh, if you do, if you eat so many Christmas cookies, you have to do X amount of exercise. It's like, no, that is just the, that's a man's view. It's a male lens of looking at it, of saying food and exercise, you have to exercise X amount in order to eat this. We know that energy is completely different from calorie in, calorie out. It's the nutrition density. It's when do you fuel, what kind of training you're doing. Are you doing high intensity? Are you doing low intensity? And there's so many different components to being able to change body composition and lose weight that every time I see an article about eat this, not that, burn so many calories by doing X, Y, Z, I get so frustrated because it's still perpetuating uh, ingrained myth that comes in that whole weight loss category. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And even people really heavily relying on things like their Fitbits and you know my fitness pal to tell them to eat X amount of calories every single day, whereas they forget that they do different things every single day. And even when we're talking about it from females in a men- menstrual cycle perspective, even um, women tend to burn a few extra calories, don't they, just before they get their period as well and during their menstrual cycle. Yeah, exactly. And the algorithms on those Fitbits and wearables are so rough that they're not really good for dialing in calorie requirements or how much you burn from exercise. They're good for tracking and making people aware, but they're absolutely no good for actual weight loss. Couldn't agree more. And I always say to clients, the best thing, just like you said, to track your cycle is to track your your weight and how you're feeling and your mood and your digestion and your sleep and not be so heavily reliant on the number on the scale or the number on your you know fitness tracker because it is so different and there are so many variables at play. And as you keep mentioning, I'm sure that a lot of the, you know, the algorithms that these these watches came up with is probably based on on males as well. Yeah, exactly. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I'm sure you were learning so much from Dr. Stacy, but I wanted to take just 30 seconds out of this incredible podcast to tell you a little bit more about Nutra Organics, because without their generous sponsorship of the podcast, you wouldn't be hearing it right now. Nutra Organics is one of my favorite Australian whole food companies who provide a range of organic, honest whole food products to nourish you and your family. From plant-based, gut-friendly protein to collagen, superfood blends, whole food bars, kids' products and more, Nutra Organics source the highest quality ingredients to create the most delicious and nutritious products that are easy to incorporate into daily life and support your well-being. You can use the discount code that they have kindly offered for you guys, which is LEANN. L-E-A-N-N-E for 15% off their range of whole food products and check them out at www.neutralorganics.com.au. And again, that discount code is Leanne for 15% off their range. Now let's get straight back to our podcast with Dr. Stacey. Now, I'd love to get your thoughts around, um, we mentioned a little bit around the oral contraceptive pill, and I know that there are a lot of women out there who do take that, but I would just love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about why you don't recommend, um, I guess, using it and other forms of contraception that you're more um, inclined to use. And um, because I know that even as a young female, particularly when I first started studying nutrition at uni in my early 20s, I would use the pill to skip my period. And time and time and time again, I would go months without it um, just because it was just such 
such an inconvenience to have. And I'm sure that there are so many young listeners at home who may be doing the same thing as well. So I'd love to get your wisdom around this. I feel like I'm older and wiser now and I definitely don't do those things anymore, but I would love to get your your knowledge and your expertise around this subject because I know you are so passionate about it. Yeah. And I always um, preface before I begin talking about not being on the pill is I'm a female athlete, nutrition and performance expert. I'm not a medical doctor. So I get into these conversations with medical doctors about the oral contraceptive pill, and they're always looking at it from health scope, not necessarily contraception. So if you have something like endometriosis or you have PCOS and you need to be on hormonal contraceptive for that health controllable aspect, that's a different category than what I'm getting ready to talk about. What I'm talking about is the general healthy woman who is looking for contraception um, for the method of not getting pregnant or wants to go on an OC because she doesn't want to get her period or early phases of like being 15 or 16, very regular, bad skin, and her GP's like, you need to go on an OC. Now, what we know is that the exogenous hormones or the hormones that are in an oral contraceptive pill are not the same as your natural hormones. What they do is they downregulate your natural hormones and synth or are synthetically almost identical to your natural hormones, but there's a hydroxyl group or one of the the hanging off bits of the molecular structure is not quite the same. So they affect us differently. We know that um, women taking an oral contraceptive pill and doing a heavy resistance training program, yes, they will increase the cross-sectional fiber and size, and they will increase their type 1 fibers but it's not functional. It's just larger size, but there's no increase in strength. We also know that the OC will downregulate our ability to hit that top VO2 max or that high end intensity. Um, Because the nature of taking an OC is it downregulates our natural hormones. Um, So we are flatlined in our natural hormones. And then the period that comes with an OC is not a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed. So from an endocrine perspective, we don't really know what's going on. I get really frustrated with physicians who don't understand a lot about the female athlete or, or exercising woman who's like, oh, you're amenorrheic. You haven't had a period. Let's put you on a pill because that's going to help fix it. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything except mask the symptoms. It doesn't help with bone density because it's the wrong kind of estrogen to actually help stimulate what we call insulin growth factor one to help with bone mass. It is not a real period. So we don't know if you are ovulating or not by the nature of an OC, you are not because you don't have um, the luteinizing hormone surge that will cause ovulation. And when I look at it, I'm like, the baseline aspect for any woman is to be healthy. If we're healthy, then we adapt really well to exercise stress and other stressors. If you're taking an OC, we cannot tell if you are healthy because it masks all of our endocrine function. One of the first thing that happens when there's a misstep between food and exercise, fueling our body and adapting to exercise, is we start to have thyroid dysfunction and and endocrine dysfunction that comes out as irregular menstrual periods. If we have irregular menstrual periods or irregular menstrual cycles and it's consistent and then they start to stop, then we know we need to look at the training stress, the exercise stress, the food intake. But if you're on OC, we can't do that because we don't know. 
those hormones do not allow us to keep track of our endocrine system. So I'll have female athletes who will be like, oh yeah, I've been on the pill for five, six years because I was amenorrheic for three or four years prior to. And they're starting to get stress fractures. They put on um, extra weight. They aren't reaching their performance potential. So it's like, okay, well, let's see if we can get you off an OC and just maybe have you do a mini pill. A mini pill is just a progestin only pill. It's the next step down. It's still a pill. You have to take it every day, but it's only progestin, which has the least effects on um, systemic influences of training adaptations. Then the next step is down to an IUD. So we know that the inner intrauterine device, the IUD, either copper or hormone, um, is very localized and it affects the cervix and it makes it very inhospitable for sperm. But your own hormones still go up and down. You can still ovulate on a copper IUD. You just can't become pregnant because the uterine lining is not hospitable to um to having a survival of a pregnancy. And the IUD is, is also known on the WHO list of, of um, important medicines as one of the top 200 most essential medicines in, in the world because it is so effective at preventing pregnancy. So if we're looking at the idea of using contraception to prevent pregnancy with the idea of having endocrine health and understanding what's happening with our hormones, the IUD is the way to go. It was a big blurb of part of my passion of like, we got to take control. I know that the history of the OC is giving women the liberation and the freedom and control not to become pregnant so they could have their own pathway. But when we look at how it affects us from a health standpoint, I feel like it puts us back in that box of not having control. Mm. And I think it's so important for females to do their research as well. And just because their GP is recommending it to sort of even um, have another perspective and do some research about the effects that these these pills might also have in terms of other health. And as you mentioned, our hormones and our training as well, because there are many different um, things that we can take. And as you mentioned, like the IUD um, is, you know, just a different option to the pill, but it could be so much better for young females as well, any females. Yeah, exactly. Now, taking a completely different direction, I would love to talk to you about PMS because, again, I get lots of messages from women online saying, you know, around the time of my period, I feel so bloated, I get cramps, I just can't get off the couch, my sugar cravings go through the roof. I know you've got some wonderful strategies in terms of um, trying to minimize PMS symptoms, so I'd love for you to chat to our listeners about them today. Yeah, so, I I mean, like three out of four women experience some sign and symptom of PMS, Um, which is different from P, uh, premenstrual dysmorphia disorder, which is a lot of, of severe depression and cramping. So we'll just talk about the general PMS. So we had the bloating, the cramping, the brain fog, um, the feeling flatness, and all of this is primarily an, an inflammation-related uh, effect. So estrogen affects the kidney and some of the... Um, the fluid channels in the kidney, as well as progesterone to cause a little bit of fluid shift that feels the bloating. We also know that estrogen crosses the blood brain barrier and hypersensitizes serotonin. So we have a bit of that brain fog. So there are some simple nutrition interventions that we can do to mitigate all this. 
So we know that we need more magnesium and zinc because our body uses a lot of it building the uterine lining. And there's a competition um, for magnesium and zinc between building the uterine lining and muscle function as well as our immune system. So if we boost our magnesium and zinc intake, in particular those about five to seven days before our period starts, then our immune system doesn't go wackadoo in the fact that we aren't more predisposed to upper respiratory tract infections. We have less um, muscle fatigue and cramping, Um, not only muscle like skeletal muscle, but also uh, uterine contractions are less intense. Um, And then when we're looking at mitigating inflammation, using more omega-3 fatty acids because they affect the same um, prostaglandin Uh, receptor site as estrogen. So it's all about mitigating these processes right before you shed the uterine lining. So generally we say, okay, 45 milligrams of of, uh, zinc, 250 milligrams of magnesium, one gram of omega-3 fatty acids, and then one uh, 80 milligram dose of baby aspirin or aspirin. Because all of that interferes with that inflammation. So it downregulates the inflammation and it also helps with their immune system. And over the course of three cycles, it flatlines all of those um, really strong PMS symptoms. And our periods actually become a little bit shorter. So there's less intense bleeding and it actually shortens the duration of that period week. Wonderful. Such practical recommendations. And are they recommendations for, I would say, like the general healthy female? Obviously not if they've got certain um, conditions or that sort of thing. Correct. It's just for, you know, people, most women who are like, oh, I am bloated. I feel really tired and irritable. So it is that, you know, just trying to affect those receptor sites and finding a counter to the receptor sites that estrogen and progesterone are grabbing onto. And I'm going to quickly ask you as well about tart cherry juice, because I know you're a huge fan. And I know around the time of our menstrual cycle, um, I particularly myself always wake up feeling quite hot during the night and get a little bit of a, I just don't sleep as well around the time of my menstrual cycle, which I'm sure many women also um, sort of feel those same symptoms. Um, You are a big fan of tart cherry juice, aren't you? Yeah, there's a couple of of reasons for that. Um, So we know that we need melatonin to sleep. And with the hypersensitization of serotonin with estrogen, it makes it harder for melatonin to take hold. So if you're using tart cherry juice that has its own melatonin, it enhances your body's own production of melatonin as well as kind of modulates some of the serotonin um, and other neurotransmitter reuptake. So you're able to get into a good sleep. Uh, The other thing I often recommend is drinking it cold so that we can bring our core temperature down before we sleep, which is essential because we can't really fall into a deep sleep until our core temperature drops. The natural rhythm of sleep is your core temperature drops, it stays low, and then a natural wake cycle is your core temperature starts to come up. And because the high hormone, we are in a higher baseline or basal level of, of internal temperature we just fluctuate right there at that deep sleep and awakeness. So we just need something to tip us downward into that deeper sleep temperature, which is drinking that cold tart cherry juice really helps. And do you um, source it from anywhere in particular, any sort of brands that you would recommend, thinking even from like a worldwide perspective? Oh, um, True to You is the um, Australasia brand. 
And then Cherubundi is one in the States. Um, but really, you're just looking for tart cherries. And there's so many different brands out there. Uh, and you can get a concentrate. You can get just a straight juice. But I wouldn't go for the powdered capsules because we don't know the effectiveness of the compounds in the powdered capsules. So just stick with the juice or the concentrate. Mm -hmm. And that's because a lot of the research has been carried out on the juice itself, has it? Yeah. And just by the nature of drawing the fruit and creating the powder, we don't know if it deactivates some of the essential compounds or not, um, just because you're changing the form of it. So there hasn't been any research done to look at that kind of change or the efficacy of the powdered form. And in terms of amounts, is it sort of just like a half a cup or just a really small amount that's needed? Yeah, it's really small. Usually they say a 15 mil dose um, and you dilute that in maybe 200 mils of water. So it's not a, a massive amount and it is tart. It's not sweet. So if people are expecting a sweet cherry drink. It's not. It's tart. Um, so the sugar impact is low and the um, benefits are really high because it's also a very powerful antioxidant. Wonderful. All right. Well, that's probably all that we have time for in this first podcast. Um, we talked a lot about the female physiology and some training, and we just touched on a little bit of nutrition. And I'd love to get you back on the podcast, Dr. Stacy, to talk really a little bit more around nutrition strategies for female bodies. Um, but just before we go, could you tell us a little bit more about the wonderful book um, you have called Raw? Yeah, Raw. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm kind of laughing intrinsically because it's four years old. And it's just now like gotten lots of traction. And it came about um, because my co-author, Celine Yeager, uh, she's in the fitness and cycling industry. And I know her from that realm. And she was part of a lot of the testing that I was doing for some um, products I had been creating. And she'd come to a lot of seminars and she sat down and she's like, you know what, we need to put this all in a book so more people can can understand and, and get a hold of what the real science is. And I was like, okay. So we pitched it to Rodell and they loved it. So we wrote it and put it out. And now four years later, it's like exploded because I think it's been the missing link that so many people have been wanting. And with the globalization of um, the acceptance of women in sport and more conversations coming out about periods and the sporting culture, and then you're finding answers within different situations and people are like, you got to read this book. Um, so yeah, it's out there and it's great. Uh, but I've created an online course that kind of updates it all and brings in the new science behind it. But as a as a starting point um, to get really good information about how women are not small men, um, Roar is a fantastic resource. Wonderful. And I have read it. And it's so funny that I actually knew that it wasn't new. I knew that it was a few um, a few years old. But when I went into the bookshop to purchase it, I remember the guy saying, oh, yes, um, he was talking about how it was this new book. And people had been asking for it a lot lately. And they were ordering a lot more copies in. So <laughs> quite, quite amusing. But it is available um, probably in a lot of um, really good bookstores, but also online as well. And um, Dr. Stacey, in terms of your website and social media, where can our listeners uh, reach out to you, find you, um, look up that course that you were talking about? Yeah, more information um, about the courses on the website, the drstacysems.com. And we post um, information about the course and updates and a whole bunch of projects and things that are coming up. But for day-to-day -day snippets, it's more social media where we uh, put out science snippets and 
and try to get the conversation growing. And it's on Facebook and Instagram as Dr. Stacey Sims. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and, and enlightening us with all of your research and your knowledge. And um, I can't wait to have you back to chat a little bit more around nutrition um, and the female physiology as well. Great. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it.